We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 8. We shall read from the beginning of the chapter just now to refresh our minds. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, which had the seven trumpets, prepared themselves to sound. And may the Lord add his blessing to this brief reading of his word. We did take note of uh, the early part of this chapter last uh, Lord's Day, and uh, took particular note of the importance of the prayers of the saints, the tremendous effect that they have, the great power of these prayers of the saints that ascend with the incense from the altar that is before the throne. Now, you will recall that we, of course, began by considering the important fundamental fact that if we are to understand God's word, we have to appreciate that what we are considering here in the book of the Revelation is the reality that was typified in the earlier portions of Scripture, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. And the heavenly things are the realities. The types and the shadows were not the reality. And we noted the comparison or the contrast between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. And the altar there, and the brazen sea, and the candlestick, and so on. And then we have the realities here, particularly in the book of the Revelation. Now, central, as we've stressed, the key that opens the book is that it is the revelation of Christ. He's central He's at the very center of everything. He's in control. We've noted him 
being crowned, enthroned, and so on. Now here, the beginning of this chapter, we have seven angels before the throne. Verse 2, I saw seven angels which stood before God. Now that's an important statement. We were considering the purpose of the ministry of the angels, whatever they're doing, blowing the trumpets, pouring out the vials, whatever they're doing, it is in the service of the people of God. They are sent forth to minister to them who are the inheritors of the kingdom, who are the saints of God. That's their service, no matter what they're doing. It is a, it's a contribution to that service. Now, among the angelic hosts, and remember how great they are, whenever Jesus was standing before Pilate, and Pilate was claiming that he had power to crucify Christ to release him, what did Jesus say? Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee. And then he said he could call twelve legions of angels, if he so desired, to deliver him. A legion was around 6,000 soldiers. And he could call twelve of these legions at any time. And the legion also had a 120 uh, horsemen or cavalry attached to it. So you can imagine Jesus said, I could call 12 legions of angels right now. They're with, it's within my power to do it. He didn't, of course. But in that statement, he, of course, is indicating how numerous uh, these angelic hosts are. Now, there is an order among the angels. That is one of the reasons when Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he, it, or uh, when he's uh, writing about the abuses in the church at Corinth. One of the things that he mentions in 1 Corinthians and the chapter 11 when he's dealing with the disorder in the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and there is lacking order and uh, between male and female and so on, and he is exhorting the Corinthians to restore order. And one of the things that he, of course, mentions is the woman covering their heads in the public worship of God. One of the arguments that he uses is verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 11, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head. Why? Because she's submissive to her husband? No. Because of the angels. 
because of the angels. The angels do not recognize disorder and chaos in the church. It is a mystery to them how that the church could claim to be the church, how the church, the visible church, could claim to be serving Christ when they don't even keep order. Because they know from their experience God has established order and he maintains order. And you have Paul, for example, he speaks of the order within the unholy fallen angelic hosts. He refers to them as principalities and powers and dominions. Principalities, powers, dominions. That's why Paul speaks to the Ephesians of the world of the ungodly, those who are led astray by the devil at his will. Now, you find in this book of the Revelation uh, reference to Michael, the archangel. Michael was just not an ordinary angel. He's an archangel. You go to the book of Daniel, and there you have Gabriel, and you have, uh, or rather you have Michael there, mentioned on different occasions, and it is said that he is highly intelligent and an angel of warfare. He engages in war. He's a warring, fighting angel at the head of legions of fighting angels. When the angel comes to visit Mary and tells her she's to be the mother of the Savior, and she's asking, well, how can this be? That would be something miraculous. I am Gabriel. I am Gabriel, and he is another one of the archangels, and they understand in their service there is an order, and they keep order. And there are angels who stand here before the throne of God. Verse 2 of uh, Revelation 8, I saw the seven angels which stood before God. They were particularly close to God, ready to receive orders. And if, for example, you have Michael, and he is, as you find out later in the book of the Revelation, you have Michael fighting. Uh, uh, there's uh, war with the angels of darkness, and uh, Satan is cast out in chapter 12. You imagine these angels before the throne waiting in readiness 
to receive their orders and then go forth to engage in the service of of who? They are sent forth to minister to those, as the apostle says, who are the redeemed of the Lord. Now, in addition to these angels that stood before the throne, it's interesting that seven are mentioned, and of course seven is one of the numbers that has its own symbol as we've looked at in the past, and we shall look further at it. In the Persian court, it were exactly the same. Seven particular officers stood at the throne ready to receive the commandments of their monarch. And it was a regular thing in Eastern uh, culture and kingdoms. But we read in verse 3, and another angel. The angel, of course, means the messenger. Another angel came and stood at the altar. Now, some people will get confused because to them, well, angels must all be angels. Aren't they all just angels? Well, immediately, whenever we read or have read the messages to the seven churches in Asia, they were directed to the angel of the church. And he was not a spiritual being like these angels who are standing before the throne, because angel means messenger. Here is a particular angel now, and he came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense and so on. Now, going back to what we said at earlier stages, these heavenly things are the reality that was typified in the ceremonial worship in the Old Testament. Now, no one was allowed to serve at the altar, and no one could take incense before God but the high priest. When he went into the Holy of Holies, it was he who took the blood and he took the incense. The angel here then, and we need to understand it, is the angel of the covenant, the one that you go back to the book of Judges, is referred to the angel appearing, the angel of the covenant, and he it is alone who can come to this altar. This is the risen, glorious Christ himself, and he is the one who uh, is offering up uh, the prayers with his own incense. He is offering up the prayers because they must come through the mediation of the great high priest. None in the Old Testament, in the ceremonies and in the typical worship, had a right to go to the altar and take incense before God. But the high priest, who was the type 
of the high priest who is after the order of Melchizedek. That's important that we grasp that because when the prayers are offered up, he does something else. The angel then, in verse 5, took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. You remember that Jesus, on one occasion, said, I came to do what? To send fire upon the earth. Here, He is casting forth fire into the earth and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels, once he has done this, the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound everything as you hear me say so often. Absolutely everything that is stated has its own significance. Here are these mighty servants of God. And they are in the ranks of those who are sent forth, as uh, I've been saying, they are sent forth to minister to them who shall be the heirs of salvation. Do they take their work seriously? Do they think that they are capable because they are angels to do that? They are sent forth to minister. Yes, they can't redeem them. They can't atone for their sin. They can't save them but they are to minister to them. And for them, that is such a serious matter and service that, what do we read here? They're going to sound these trumpets. And that's in this service. They prepared themselves to sound. They prepared themselves the service that they're engaged in, sent forth to minister to the saints. Any man who enters a pulpit, any man who, or woman even worse, takes it upon themselves to claim to engage in the service of God's people who doesn't prepare, he's a disgrace to his very office. They prepared themselves before they would blow these trumpets and execute these particular services. But before we come to see what happens when they blow these trumpets. Four are blown and then three more, but before we come to it, as I've said, 
We may make slow progress at times because it is necessary to establish certain fundamental truths in order to interpret correctly the word, and that means we sometimes have to refute erroneous uh, and dangerous teachings or interpretations of Scripture. Now, in many circles, and in much evangelical thinking, when it comes to these matters, particularly regarding to the last things, there is a confusion again and again between what in Scripture refers to Israel. And what in Scripture refers to the church? And in many thinking, if it's analyzed, you have three parties. You have Israel and the church and the world. Israel, the church, and the world. If we understand Scripture correctly, there are only two, the church and the world. And when we come to the book of the Revelation, if we have not grasped that, we will wander around in a maze. We need to know that. And for that reason, I want us to look carefully at the teaching, the clear teaching of the Savior himself. Last week, we concentrated upon the clarity that was required of the prophets, right plainly, so that he that readeth can run because he understands. It's not confusing him. It's not muddling him up. It's clear to him. Write it plainly. Make it clear. God isn't out to confuse us and keep us wandering around in doubt and darkness. So let us consider the teaching of the Savior himself. Now, if you read the four Gospels, you will know, you've heard me referring to it, there are three particular chapters in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We've looked at them in the past, particularly in Matthew, chapter 24, then in Mark, chapter 13, and then in Luke, chapter 21. Three chapters that all deal with the same matter. And each one of them, each of these Uh, authors record for us what the Savior said about the destruction of the temple, about wars and rumors of wars, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, watch because there'll be false prophets and false Christ, and all these predictions are made, and they were of such significance that each of the authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record them. Now, the interesting thing is, John doesn't even mention it. 
Nowhere in the book, in the Gospel of John, does he bother to write about that matter. But, does that mean he doesn't tell us anything? He ignored what the Savior taught. No. John, in fact, gives us the fullest account. That's what the Revelation's all about. It is unfolding, it is explaining, it is expanding what Matthew and Mark and Luke each recorded. And that has to be kept in mind. We're to understand correctly what the book of the Revelation's about. It's John's account. But it is a fuller explanatory account of what Jesus in reality taught and these other authors summarized. Now, I want you to go with me uh, to John chapter 16, which we've noted in the past, but just to refresh our minds as to what John himself wrote in his gospel and what he would have understood when he was actually writing the book of the Revelation. John chapter 16, and there uh, he's recording what the Savior himself promised to his disciples, the apostles. There's 12 of John 16. I have yet many things to say unto you. I haven't finished speaking yet. I have a few things. No. I have a few details to fill in. No. I have many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. You're not ready for them yet. You're not mentally, spiritually, sufficiently mature to receive them yet. How be it? When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, note that, he shall not speak of himself, But whatsoever he shall hear, he will not be the word made flesh. John speaks of the eternal Son in our nature. The word became flesh. This is the third person of the Trinity. He, what will he do? He will speak or convey to you what he hears. He will show you things to come. He will show you things to come. Now, Jesus did tell them of things to come. Matthew records it, Mark records it, Luke records it. 
But what Jesus is saying is this, I haven't told you everything. But that does not mean it will all remain a mystery to you. When he is come, he will bring the other things that you need to know. The things that you're not ready yet to receive. You're not conditioned enough to receive them. But when he comes, he will show you these things. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and show it unto you. What does John show us when he's beginning the uh, writing of the book of the Revelation, the Apocalypse. What's he doing? Writing to the seven churches in Asia. Who tells him to write? It is, as we've noted the way at the beginning, the exalted, glorified Christ. He tells John, you write to the seven churches in Asia. So John writes. The messages are from the one here who's speaking to John. But when he's coming to the end of his seven messages, what does he write? What are the churches to hear? What does John tell them They are to pay attention to. The Spirit saith unto the churches. Exactly the fulfillment of what Jesus says here. The writing and the messages are from the glorified Christ. But they are conveyed because John is writing under inspiration, but guided into the truth by the Holy Spirit. And what are the churches to do? They are to hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, when we talk of the churches, What are we speaking about? We were singing two psalms earlier on. How many really understood what they were singing? The idea is, with many people, you quote from the psalms, Quote from the Old Testament. What do you hear? Ah, that's the Old Testament. When someone comes to you speaking like that, dismiss them immediately. You get these clever people running around and we're New Testament Christians. They don't know what they're talking about in reality. Jesus... In the gospel according to Matthew there in the chapter 5 tells us that part of the purpose for his coming into the world is to fulfill. Matthew chapter 5 
Verse 17. Even the very little word in verse 17, think, think not. Because he knew what was in the heart of man and he knew what they would think. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. He distinguishes between the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Not only to fulfill the law, the ceremonial law of types and shadows, because I am the antitype and the fulfillment of all the types, but I have come to fulfill the prophets. Verily, verse 18, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Everything will be fulfilled. And who will fulfill it? Christ says, I will fulfill it. Everything. Not one jot or one tittle. Now, you have to understand that's reference to the pointing in the language, the original language. And what the Savior is saying, I will fulfill in detail. It won't just be a general fulfillment. I will fulfill in detail. Everything written in the law and in the prophets. So the prophets are vitally important. How are we ever going to know what he fulfills if we're not familiar with the prophets? How are we ever going to have any confidence? This is actually the Messiah. This man is actually the Christ. Because it's clear, as clear as the sun in the heavens, he's fulfilling it all. Now, let's start where Christ starts. You uh, go with me to Matthew chapter 16, portion that you've heard me quote many times. Matthew 16 And there, the Savior is inquiring of his disciples who the people think he is. And then he asks, well, who do you think I am? Peter answers. And then Jesus has this to say. This is the first reference, the first time in the scriptures you have the word ecclesia actually appearing. It's a new term in the vocabulary of the New Testament and of Jesus and of his apostles. Never been used before. What does he say? Uh, Matthew 16, verse 18, 
I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, what will I do? I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we've already looked at the stones that make up this building, the living stones of which Peter speaks. Now, Jesus is saying here to his disciples, I am going to build something. And they might have been wondering, what is it? They might have even thought, is there any need for such a building? What does Jesus actually mean? 128 times throughout the New Testament you find this word ecclesia appearing. But this is the first mention. And the law of the first mention is very important in the interpreting of Scripture. Now here Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the next time he mentions the church is recorded by Matthew in chapter 18. Now, what Jesus says, if it is understood by the disciples, by ourselves, we will see an immediate connection between the church and the covenant community of the Old Testament. Verse 15 of Matthew 18. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother, and so on. Verse 16. If he will not hear thee, then what are you to do? Then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Where did that come from? You go back to Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What was Moses teaching the children of Israel? What were the principles, the fundamental principles of honesty and integrity and justice? in the camp of the Israelites, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word was to be established. Numbers 10, for example, if uh, someone was to uh, follow idolatry or whatever, they were to be brought to the gate, to the elders, they were to be taken out and stoned, but it had to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses that the evidence was produced. One witness was not sufficient. So here's Jesus telling his disciples, I'm going to build my church. They might think, well, what is this new thing he's going to do? Ecclesia means called out. We shall see the significance of that shortly. But 
These disciples now can understand the divine principles of justice and order and discipline are obviously going to be carried over into this church that Jesus is intending to build. Now, if you go with me to the uh, epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians, we see this church that Jesus is going to build, its foundation identified, and it's very clear. There's no uh, confusion whatever about it. Ephesians and the second chapter, and what is uh, Paul right there, verse 18, speaking of Jew and Gentile, through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here's the foundation. I will build my church. And I will transfer the governing principles that ruled and maintained order in the Old Testament community. I will transfer it into the church that I'm going to build. Now, what will I build it upon? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple, into one building, an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now you go to Revelation chapter 21, you will see there the foundation of the new Jerusalem is referred to. And what's in it? The names of the twelve apostles. It's the foundation. Now, keeping that in mind, Here's the church that he's going to build. He tells us, and John tells us, Paul tells us, upon which foundation this church is to be built. But remember, as Jesus is building it, what's he doing? Fulfilling the law and the prophets. That's what he's doing. That's what he said he came to do. So this building of the church, is this something outside of the law and the prophets? Or is it fulfilling the law and the prophets? It cannot be otherwise than the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, keeping in mind, since we're in this part of the word of God, 
what Jesus told these foundational members, the the foundation of the church, what they were to do. If you uh, go with me over to uh, the 24th chapter of Luke, Jesus was opening up the scriptures to the two on the way to Emmaus, uh, chapter 24 of Luke, and uh, he tells uh, his disciples that they are to be in readiness for the fulfillment of the promise that he had received of his father. Verse 47 of uh, Luke 24, the uh, Savior says, that repentance and remission of sins is to be preached in Christ's name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Not only do we find out the identity of the foundation, but we're also directed to where the Savior is going to begin this building. He's going to begin to build it very definitely, very specifically, in one place, Jerusalem. Now, we miss that. We're going to muddle through Scripture everywhere. I'm going to begin it, and I'm going to begin to build it in Jerusalem. For this reason then, in verse 48, Jesus says, ye are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem. That's You must wait there. You've got to be there. You must be in the city of Jerusalem because I am going to build my church and I'm going to start the work there in Jerusalem. Now, when you go to Acts chapter 1, you have the Savior leaving these very men, these apostles. They are to be the foundation of the church. And he's going to start to build it in Jerusalem. So, verse 4 of Acts 1, being assembled together with them, what did Jesus do? He commanded them. He didn't suggest it. He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father which saith he, ye have heard of me. You know that promise I was telling you about? I'm going to fulfill it. But you've got to be in Jerusalem in readiness. Verse 8, Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So that's clear. 
They've got to be in Jerusalem. They're not to be anywhere else. But who are they? Well, go down to verse 11. When Jesus ascends, there they're standing looking up into heaven. Well, the Savior has been warning them. He's going to leave them. Now he has. But then, verse 10, why they look steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said unto them, Look, ye men of Jerusalem. No. Ye men of Galilee. Ye men of Galilee. Ye men of Galilee, you better be in Jerusalem. You don't live there. You're not occupied there. You don't belong there. You are men of Galilee. Whenever on the day of Pentecost, uh, the disciples, the apostles, are endued with power from on high, Why are the crowds wondering when they hear Peter preaching? Chapter 2 of Acts, we're told that uh, verse 6, there was noised abroad what was happening. The multitude came. Verse 7, they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold! Are not all these which speak Galileans? They are Galileans. Strange. They are not from Jerusalem. They are Galileans. Now what's the significance of that? You go back to the gospel according to Matthew, and of course it is the recording Uh, or the citing of the Old Testament, the prophets. In Matthew chapter 4, reading of the Savior, uh, we read, he was leaving Nazareth, verse 13, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast and the borders of Zabulon and Naphtalim, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtalim by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles. Why were they so amazed when they were listening to these men speaking and preaching the gospel to them in their own tongues because they were from Galilee of the Gentiles. And here is the Savior engaged in the building of his church. He's doing it his way and not as the way and the way that maybe others might have expected him to do. But then, of course, what has he said? 
when I build my church, it'll be in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So let us then see what the prophets have to say. Go with me first of all. Well, I, I, I forgot to mention, we were, I mentioned the Psalms. We were singing, did we understand them? You go back to the first Psalm that we sang. In fact, many, many of the Psalms, we, we could uh, look at them, but uh, the first uh, Psalm that we were singing from, uh, uh, the Psalm 97, and there in that Psalm, people tell us we don't find Christ in the Psalms. We don't find the New Testament in the Psalms. We don't find the New Testament church in the Psalms. Well, when they speak that way, they simply expose their ignorance. In the Psalm 97, and we were singing of it earlier. Verse 8. This is only one example. We could look at other Psalms. Psalm 97, verse 8, Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of the judgments of thy judgments, O Lord. Now, if I asked you, who are the daughters of Judah? What would you say? They must have been the females and the tribe of Judah. Well, we shall see that in the prophets, and Jesus came to fulfill them, reference is made again and again to Jerusalem and Judah and their daughters. Israel and Judah and Jerusalem and her daughters. What do you have when you read the seven epistles to the seven churches in Asia? We shall see indisputably they are the daughters of Judah. That's what they are. And you can imagine people coming along and saying, well, I mean, how can you sing this here whenever you're not even part of Zion? You don't belong to the tribe of Judah. The seven churches in Asia were seven daughters of Judah, as we shall see. And the New Testament church is the daughter of Jerusalem and the daughter of uh, Judah. Now, look with me, as I said, Isaiah, uh, and as quickly as possible, Isaiah chapter 2, to begin with, verse 3, Many people shall go and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. Why? 
For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from where? From Jerusalem. Isaiah, the prophet. What's he say? Day is coming when out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What did Jesus say he had come to do? I've come to fulfill that. As I built my church, you will witness the actual fulfillment. The law going out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You can look at Micah and the uh, prophet Micah in chapter 4 says basically exactly the same thing. Verse 2 of Micah 4, nations shall come and they shall say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Nations, many nations shall come and they shall go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways and he will we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now keeping that in mind, what did the Savior tell the disciples to do? They were to wait at Jerusalem in readiness for the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the word then would go forth out of Jerusalem. Now, the time is flying past, but I might just mention uh, at the moment what we have in the Acts of the Apostles and in the chapter 12. There you have uh, a division beginning to appear The church is becoming clearly identified. In chapter 12, for the sake of time, the beginning of the chapter, now about the time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. That's what he's doing, to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Now there you can see there's a division now appearing. The church and the Jews. And the Jews and the world through Herod are now opposed to and persecuting the church that Jesus said he would build. And where is the church? At Jerusalem. Now, we haven't time at the moment to go any further, but we shall proceed to note the progress in the building of the church and the progress of the word going out 
to gather the daughters of Jerusalem, to gather the daughters of Judah. The word going out from Jerusalem. The word became flesh, dwelt among men. And now the word in the gospel is going out from Jerusalem. But who are the instruments? Not the Jews. Because, as Paul tells us, as we noted in our reading when we began in Luke, the kingdom was taken, Jesus said, we've noted it in two Sabbaths past, it's taken from you. It's taken from you. And the language that Paul uses of the breaking off of the branch, in reality, that means that not only they were broken off uh, as it were for others to be uh, grafted in, but they are excommunicated. That's in reality. That's the strong language. That's the strong uh, action. They were excommunicated in order that the Gentiles might be grafted in. And you see how things develop. The church becomes clearly distinguished. Fear not, little flock. Why? The little tiny flock, the little remnant, as we noted, of Israel. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He has taken it from the Pharisees, and the rulers of the Sanhedrin, who said, we have no king but Caesar, has taken it from them. He's given it to you. But he's still working from Jerusalem. We shall have to leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God who cannot lie, we rejoice we have in our hands a reliable witness to the power of God, to the purpose of God, to the saving, redemptive purposes of the triune God. O teach us, we pray, that we might love thy word, that we might feed upon it, and that we might have confidence in it. Bless us, we pray, with understanding of the Redeemer's purpose in coming into this world. Accept us and pardon us and all for Christ's sake. Amen.